This is episode 24 of the Inner Game of Aging podcast. Welcome to the Inner Game of Aging podcast, helping you to discover how to be older without growing old. And here's your host, turning this whole idea of aging upside down, Lee Mowat. Hello and welcome to episode number 24 of the Inner Game of Aging podcast. Today's topic is the broad area of elder law practice. Now, broadly speaking, elder law covers areas of legal practices that place an emphasis on those issues that affect an aging population. But as I found out, this definition barely scratches the surface of what this area is all about. Indeed, my guest for today feels that the term elder law is really a misnomer that gives people the wrong idea of the issues that can be tackled under this banner. Most elder law attorneys handle a wide range of legal matters, including issues related to health care, long-term care planning, guardianships, retirement issues, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, wills, trust, estate planning, and the list goes on. David R. Craig is a New Hampshire elder law attorney who is giving me much insight on how extensive and intricate these areas can be. Indeed, the information was so extensive, I had to break up the conversation into two parts. This episode contains the first half where we discuss personal planning, planning for our own aging, probate matters, wills, revocable and irrevocable trusts, and so on. But the conversation continues in part two, where we deal with living wills, powers of attorney and the various types there, advanced directives, guardianships, Medicaid rules, and so on. And look to the show notes page for even more information about these topics. David has given us some pretty interesting articles that should be shared for additional insight into these matters. I will also be adding other links and resources that I have found helpful in exploring this area as well. The show notes page for this episode can be found at innergameofaging.com forward slash IGA24. And did you know that by subscribing to the Insiders Club on the website, you can be notified whenever any of the show notes pages are updated, which I tend to do from time to time as I see new information. This is just another benefit offered to the Insiders Club members of the Inner Game of Aging. So, with all the reminders out of the way, let's sink our teeth into today's conversation. David Craig, I'm so glad to be here with you today to learn about elder law. I'd like you to teach me everything you possibly can squeeze into my head. How long have you been practicing elder law? I have been, well, I've been practicing law for about 20 years, Mm -hmm. uh, and I've been practicing exclusively in this area for probably 16 or 17 years, give or take. Mm -hmm. And in... 
2004, uh, or very early 2005, I became the first board-certified elder law attorney in the state of New Hampshire. There what, are, what does it mean to be a board-certified? Yeah, yeah I, was, I was hoping you might ask. Okay. Uh, just to put it in context, uh, there are now uh, three of us in New Hampshire, and there are about 500 of us in the whole country. Uh, it is a... Um, there are very few things in law practice that you can get formally board certified in. Uh, elder law happens to be one of them. The program is probably 30 years old, give or take, and it's um, it was really um, a, a niche need that some of the attorneys at the time saw that there there was just a lack of general um, knowledge and specialty. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, experience and um, recognition that the issues we deal with are really kind of a niche thing. Elder law has been around for how many years? Did I hear you say? Well, I, let me start by saying I really don't like the term elder law. I think it's Did very misleading. Um, yeah. I have, um, and I've written articles about this actually. I have clients who are in their forties who have very, very difficult medical situations. Uh, somebody who's got ALS at forty-two is, you know, doesn't meet my definition of elderly. Um, I, I work with uh, children with special needs and developmental disabilities uh, in some of those things, and some of them are as young as, you know, newborn or uh, infants or toddlers. Okay. So th- the term is misleading. I think what it really... Um, the way to, The way to best express it, it's all of the issues that tend to affect older people and whether those be health issues or planning issues, mm-hmm. uh, personal planning, uh, public supports, uh, programs like Medicare, Medicaid, uh, veterans benefit issues. Oh, those are those are kind of niche things that typically older people deal with, but um, you know, somebody dealing with a, a chronic medical situation in their 30s or 40s would be an elder law um, so what, I, what I'm needing, from my own understanding, elder law consists of categories. For example, wills sure. and trusts, yes. Medicaid. You know, if I can get a, an initial list of the sections of life that elder law touches. Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, I, one of the one of the questions I get from time to time is, you know, how old should I be before I start doing some personal planning? And my flippant answer, you know, it, it's not that flippant, but it's it's the reality is, you know, the day somebody turns eighteen and they're an emancipated adult, mm-hmm. you know, they need to be thinking about this stuff okay. uh, as you're a young adult. Uh, you're what category from, about the law? Yeah, that so that's the personal planning side. Personal planning. Yeah, it's um, you know, what if I were hurt in an accident? Uh, what if I had a sudden medical event? Um, what if, um, sadly, I was standing on the wrong street corner when the back black bag, you know, okay. explodes? Or uh, what if I get bit by the wrong mosquito sure. and I'm laid up for four months as a result? So now, those, are, those are the kinds of that's things. Falls, all that falls under personal planning. Yeah, sure. And that's not really age-related. No, it's uh, not. You know, I, I've sadly had young individuals who were in car accidents and mm-hmm. difficult medical events and having good powers of attorney so that their chosen backup people can help them with their financial decisions, mm-hmm. legal decisions, medical decisions. So outside of you personal... Outside of personal planning, where where do we go in elder law outside of personal planning? Uh, People then um, think about, uh, uh, as I age, what kind of help might I need? Um, 
if I'm physically frail, how do I um, how do I do the things uh, that I once could do? The you know we call them the activities of daily living. Mm-hmm. You know those things that so I it's aging planning. Yeah, planning for your aging. Sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah or um, you know being proactive about things. You know. Gosh, I don't want to end up in a nursing facility like my grandmother did. What are some of the things that I can do to stay home and stay safe and um, stay uh, engaged in my community and, okay. and do those things in a smart way? Uh, there's a financial side to that. Uh, sure. There are insurance aspects to that. Um, there are programs and services designed to help keep people safe in the community. How do those programs work? Uh, and how that, about, that's that's what um, elder law is. How about um, abuse and things like that's that? Certainly, that. financial exploitation of older people is a very real concern. That's now a felony in the state of New Hampshire, okay. uh, and it has been for a couple of years now. Okay. Um, that's a you know in legal terms, that's a relatively new development, um, mm-hmm. but. It still, fits on, it still fits under elder law. Yeah, sure. Okay. Okay. The, the, the abuse and exploitation things. Sure. Uh, you know, understanding those issues and, and how to put safeguards in place. How to make sure that people have power to help you in a smart way. Um, I see an awful lot of uh, people who will put their children's names on their bank accounts or they'll put their children's names on a home thinking that that's a smart idea. Mm-hmm. I, I will tell you the vast majority of the time it's generally not a great way of doing it. There are other and better ways to empower people to help you and um, prevent the the potential problems that come with We'll that. get into yeah. some of those. Now, um, the... the one of the things that concerns me in having a conversation about elder law with any one person is because there is state-specific stuff sure, and yeah. national-specific sure, stuff. Yeah. How do how do I sort through what's? I mean, is there a national policy or is it all state-specific? I will tell you that the personal planning side of it is generally state-specific. So the way that we do wills in New Hampshire or the way that they do wills in Massachusetts or North Dakota or California, Mm -hmm. that's very state-specific. But every state has a statute that recognizes the planning work that was done in other states. So there's some comedy there between states. Uh, Where it gets to be a little bit more national is when you're dealing with, for example, the Social Security Administration. Sometimes my clients are told the Social Security Administration won't honor the power of attorney that I have for my mother. And the answer is that's correct because it's the federal government. They're they're not concerned with the niceties of how 50 different states do things. They need to have one set of rules. That said, they will look to powers of attorney as guidance mm-hmm. and persuasive. The Veterans Administration, same thing. Uh, how you become that's national? Yeah, national. Mm-hmm. How you become a representative for somebody under the VA rules is different than the way the state of New Hampshire might. Say you become a fiduciary for sure. somebody. So we'll we'll get into guardianships, oh, yeah, uh, guardianship all that stuff. Yeah, all that stuff. That's all very state specific. But because people move in this society, you know, my client that uh, has a guardianship here in New Hampshire may move to Massachusetts to be closer to family. Sure. Or the the folks that retired to Florida may move back up to New England to be closer to their grandchildren. So there there are all sorts of laws and processes between the states to recognize what other states have done. 
as you know, the listeners of my podcast are national. Yeah. Um, and so I need to have an yeah, idea. Yeah. No, if, if, if I get into something that is, uh, very state specific, I will qualify that. Uh, there, there, there is also a lot of overlap. For example, Medicaid, uh, that's an issue <laughs> that, uh, many, many people have questions about. It's a bit of a moving target right now. Mm. Uh, what's happening in Washington, uh, is anyone's guess. I have my predictions and, um, observations about what I think is happening, Mm -hmm. but uh, at this point it's just my opinion. Uh, Medicaid is a joint program between the states and the federal government, and the federal government essentially says, look, if you want our money, here are the rules that you must use and apply. And if you think about the history of the Medicaid program over the last 50 years or so, states initially had lots of flexibility to design the program any way they needed, and some states would be... um, uh, much broader in the groups of people they covered. Um, mm-hmm. And a lot of that has really changed as the federal government has become much more concerned about the cost and about potential... Is that the force for change? The, yeah, that's, the government's that's part of it, yeah. Okay. That's, that's, uh, that's actually a very large part of it. And, and what I've noticed over the years that I've been doing this is that Medicaid has become much more uniform all around the country mm-hmm. because states have much less flexibility. Hmm. Ah, okay. So we mentioned some of the categories, broader categories that fit mm-hmm. inside of elder law, personal planning, you know, aging help as we age, um, exploitation, and Medicaid. Was the yeah. Uh, court, court work, probate work, I think, is another probate big one. Work. Yeah. You know, what happens to those families that don't do any planning? And what if somebody is catastrophically ill from uh, dementia or... Um, uh, a, a head injury, or or or, what is the legal system uh, designed to do, uh, and how do those friends and family members get the power and authority to help that disabled sure. individual with all the things that they might need help okay. on? So that's what our guardianship processes are all about, and that is also very state specific. You know, here in New Hampshire, we have our probate division of the circuit court. Um, commonly referred to as our probate court. Uh, mm-hmm. In some states, they're called surrogates courts. Mm-hmm. Um, and those procedures are there to protect the disabled individual and make okay. sure that there are safeguards and accountability. And then uh, we also get into the, the post-death stuff. You know, oh, okay. how does... Um, how does a person's uh, asset base get distributed when they're no longer there? That's, that's probate. You know, if, yeah, probate mm-hmm. work. Um, mm-hmm. If I were suddenly gone tomorrow, what happens to my bank account? What happens mm-hmm. to my home? What happens to uh, my insurance policy that I've been paying on for 30 sure. years? You know, How does all of that stuff work? And that, that that really is a tie-in with the planning side of it. Yeah. You know, how how do we how do we uh, wind up somebody's affairs after they're gone? Okay, so I have just to recap a little bit of what we said. Elder law to me right now, as I'm sitting here now, is a combination of things from personal planning, help as you know, planning for aging, exploitation, Medicaid, probate, guardianship. These are words that categorize. Which one of these words? Is the easiest to talk about planning. Planning, okay. Let's head without down without without um, exception, planning. planning, because planning dovetails into everything else. Now, what's the basics I should know? There, I'm going to 
apply to my own situation internally as you talk, but we'll ask you questions that will hopefully be general enough for everyone to benefit sure. from. Yeah, sure, sure. So planning, what do we mean by planning in connection with elder law? Um, <clears throat> I guess the easiest example I can give you is a um, you know somebody's catastrophically injured in an unexpected accident. And um, boy, over the years I've been doing this work, I've seen um, a lot of unfortunate things. Um, car accidents, uh, uh, people falling downstairs. I mean, it's amazing to me how often I hear about a person who was perfectly fine on a Tuesday and they were catastrophically injured on Wednesday simply because they missed a step and fell. And uh, and it can sometimes be something as uh, silly as, uh, you know, I, I my shoes were dirty, I took them off, and I was walking up the stairs, the hardwood stairs, with um, socks on. And, uh, you know, my foot went out from under me and tumbled down the stairs. So I, I think from a planning perspective, um, you know, we all hope we're going to live long, happy, mm-hmm. healthy lives and, you know, enjoy our 90th birthday party and all of that stuff. But not all of us are quite that lucky. That's right. Um, and luck, luck is only part of it. Obviously, you have to take care of yourself, Absolutely. and you have to um, be proactive about all aspects of your life. But the planning part of it is is this simple: that young person who's got a head injury as a result of a motorcycle accident. Maybe it wasn't even his fault, mm-hmm. but now he's got a catastrophic head injury. If he can't make his own personal decisions, his own financial decisions, his own legal decisions, his own medical decisions, we've got a big problem. Because unless he was killed in that accident, life goes on. It may be fundamentally altered from that point on, but life goes on. So somebody is going to have to deal with the financial side of it. Somebody's going to have to deal with the medical side of it. And what the personal planning work is all about is how can I be proactive about those things? How well, let's answer I... that question. Let's, yeah. uh, let's answer well, that question. Well, I've done. You know, I've been married almost 27 years now. Uh, my wife hasn't killed me yet. I, I have a will. I have a trust. I have good comprehensive financial powers of attorney. I have good comprehensive medical powers of attorney. I have a living will so that my wife and my son and my family knows how I feel about things. Let's talk about some of those documents. Yeah, sure. You know, sure. A will. Yeah. What would you like to say about me? Well, believe it or not, uh, all of your listeners, I don't care where they live, they all have one whether they know it or not. Okay, because we have a state statute, at least here in New Hampshire, and I'm sure every state has one. It's our intestacy statute. It is our set of default rules about who is going to get what when you're gone. Okay, and our intestacy statute uh, is often very surprising to people. I hear all the time this um, uh, misimpression or misconception that if I don't have a will, the state's going to get everything. That could nothing could be farther from the truth. Our state intestacy statute sets out the priority of who is going to benefit. And if you look at the statute, which is publicly available on the state website, it is very common sense. It talks about spouses. It talks about children. It talks about lineal descendants, like grandchildren, great-grandchildren. If you're, if you're not married and you don't have children, your estate will go to your parents equally. If your parents are not living, it will go to brothers and sisters. If you've lost a brother or sister, it will go down to, the, to their children, your nieces and nephews, by right of representation. It's a very common-sense hierarchy about who gets what when. It gets a little screwy when you've got blended family issues with oh, stepchildren yes. and all that stuff. And it can have some unintended results. But what your will does 
Your will is your chance to change the default rules. So, for example, if everything going to your uh, parents isn't such a great result for whatever reason, Mm -hmm. and you would instead like to leave things to your friends, or you'd like to leave things to charitable organizations, or you have a disabled nephew you want to take care of, your will is your chance to change those default rules. What... What people generally don't understand about wills, at least here in New Hampshire, is the administrative process that comes with a will. Most people assume that, well, I've specified in my will who gets what, when, how, I've named my executor, that it must be an automatic thing. Well, far from it. Your will has to be admitted to the probate court system. And in New Hampshire, we have a very traditional, very formal supervised probate court system. Is that is that very different from state to state? It does vary from state to state. But in New Hampshire, a will has to be admitted. The executor has to be formally appointed by the probate judge. Even if it's specified in the will? Exactly. What you're doing in your will is you're nominating somebody. It, the only person that can give your executor the authority to go to the bank and act on your behalf is the probate judge wearing the black robe. And, you know, we're very lucky. We've got wonderful courts here. Is there ever a time where the person specified in the will cannot? Sure. Oh, it happens all the time. Every executor in the state of New Hampshire needs to go and get a surety bond. Okay. If the estate's over a certain value, sure. other than minimal. And a surety bond is essentially a promise by an insurance company that if the executor makes a mistake, whether it be intentional and egregious, like you know picking up and taking off with the money, or even if it's an unintentional mistake, paying the wrong people in the wrong order, there are creditors that have to be paid before beneficiaries get anything. If the executor messes it up, the bonding company is on the hook for that to make good to the court system and um, guarantee that. The problem that we run into is that the bonding companies have been stung so many times over so many years that they're very, very careful who they write a bond for. And as a result, we have had executors that have been named in a will but they can't get a bond because the insurance company pulls a credit report. And when they see that that executor was maybe not great with their own money and they filed bankruptcy three years ago, the bonding company is simply going to say, we're not writing the bond. Interesting. So now you've got a will that names somebody who's unable to serve because they can't get the bond and the judge won't appoint them. And in that case, what happens? In that case, we go to the next person on the list, or if there is a situation where the will is silent because you've run out of people, we might have an administrator appointed by the court with the will attached. So instead of an executor under the terms of a will, it's an administrator WWA, which means with will and next. So, and in, in, uh, uh, some situations, the court can appoint an independent third-party neutral to be sure. the executor or fiduciary. Question for you. And all um, of that, by the way, um, as you might imagine, starts to get expensive and oh, starts geez. to get very time-consuming. And, uh, mm-hmm. and, and, yeah, and that's just the beginning of the process. Um, question for you. We mentioned the intestacy will, wills. Okay, so the, they encompass the default rules. Correct. Under what circumstances would the default rules work? 
Would they work? Uh, mm-hmm. They generally work for most families. They it's do. spouses, mm-hmm. it's children. Uh, it gets a little strange when uh, the assets are significant and then you have a split between the surviving spouse and the children. Uh, uh, I haven't looked at it uh, very, very recently, but if memory serves, if the estate is over 250000 the surviving spouse gets the first two hundred and fifty, and then there's a, an equal division between the spouse and the children, as long as the children are the children of both people. If the surviving spouse is not the parent of the children, mm-hmm. then it's a much lower number. It's about a hundred thousand. Okay, and that's where it can create some problems for families. Okay, so there, but there are conditions where dying without a will is not going to cause a problem because of yeah, the structure of things. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But these, you know, I see, see I, and the other thing that that's important to keep in mind: not everything is going to be controlled by the will. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, uh, joint accounts. You know, if my wife and I have a joint account and I'm suddenly gone, well, she's a co-owner on that account. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the one place in the law where 100% and 100% equals 200%. I'm not a math whiz, but even I know that that's not really the way it works, but it kind of does because if I'm suddenly gone, my wife now owns 100% of that account. And it doesn't matter a hill of beans what I said in my will. Uh, likewise, with insurance beneficiaries or retirement plan beneficiaries. Okay. Uh, for example, if... Um, uh, I have a life insurance policy that I choose to have payable to my children from my first marriage. Mm-hmm. Um, and I suddenly pass away without a will. Well, the default rule is my surviving spouse is going to get the first X of my estate, whether it's 100000 or I guess in this case it would be the 100000 mm-hmm. Does that mean that my spouse gets that life insurance? No, because I have a contractual uh, arrangement with the insurance company uh, to be sure that my chosen beneficiaries get paid. The one that that always uh, I, I, people find interesting um, are the retirement plan beneficiary designations. Uh, there was a case that actually went to the U.S. Supreme Court on this. And everyone thinks the U.S. Supreme Court only deals with these high and lofty, yeah, yeah. you know, things about. Um, you know, sweeping public policies and uh, all of that. No, the Supreme Court deals with a lot of stuff. And there was a case that went there um, where a fella had a fairly significant uh, retirement plan account. And um, I guess it would have had to have been a 401k plan to be controlled by ERISA, which is Mm -hmm. the federal law. He had uh, named his wife. He then got divorced. He then got remarried and did not ever change his beneficiary designation. So the battle was when he died, who gets it? His ex-wife, who was the named beneficiary, or his current wife, who was his current wife. And you can imagine that was a, uh, yeah. a pretty difficult situation. And the I've, again, I've forgotten all the details, but sure. there was a state statute that says divorce revokes certain things. The federal government uh, said, well, wait a minute. No, this is a federally governed ERISA plan. So under ERISA, the beneficiary designation controls. And in that case, guess who got the money? The ex-wife. So, you know, when you when you fill out forms at work or when you um, when you open a CD at your bank and they ask you who you want to name as a beneficiary, those are very important, significant questions with legal ramifications all the way around. I also see people um, end up with very disjointed plans because they name one person as the beneficiary of something. 
thinking that they're going to have all these other assets that are going to go to other people. Well, the other assets get depleted in the later years of that person's life, and all that's left is the one thing with the beneficiary designation. Mm-hmm. So you can see yeah, it gets yeah. really kind of muddy if you're not careful about that. And that falls back into the, the catch-all of planning. What what planning attorneys do, we help people understand those issues. We help them figure out what does your life look like now? What is your life likely to look like down the road? And how do we put these arrangements in place to, number one, minimize the court involvement in your personal and family affairs? And number two, make sure that the right people get the right things at the right point in time. Let's move on to trust. Let, can we define a trust in a broad term? Sure. I know there are various types of trust, yeah. and we'll get to that. Sure. A trust. Yeah. Um, the easiest way to explain a trust is that it's really a, an arrangement between two people to hold and manage something for the benefit of someone else. People make the mistake all the time of thinking that, you know, well, wait a minute, my last name is not Kennedy or Rockefeller or uh, Trump or Clinton or, you know, uh, Bill Gates, you know, the trusts are for affluent people and, you know, it's all about taxes and, you know, why am I even talking about trusts? It has nothing to do with how much or how little you have. It is entirely possible to have a trust that owns nothing but um, some basic financial accounts or some tangible property simply because you want to have um, some good, tight arrangements about who gets what when. And so if I have an asset and I say, Lee, will you do me a favor and hang on to this for a period of time? And if something happens to me, I want you to give it to the following people in the following way. That's effectively a trust arrangement. In that example, I'd be called the grantor, the one mm-hmm. that creates it, the ones that, the person that sets it up, and you would be my trustee. Mm-hmm. And the person that I'm trying to benefit would be, as you could guess, the beneficiary. Okay. So that is your classic three-party trust. And when we do these things for personal planning, the law recognizes this kind of interesting concept that you can serve in all three roles. Oh. So, for example, I have a trust, the David R. Craig Revocable Trust, and we'll talk about what revocable mm-hmm. means. Uh, I am the grantor of the trust. I am the trustee of my trust. And believe it or not, I am the beneficiary of the trust. That feels odd to me. That's it it, it feels very odd. Mm-hmm. You know, think about um, a corporation, you know, where the owner of the company is the CEO and the sole employee and the, mm-hmm. you know, the person who's scrubbing the toilet on the yeah. weekend. You know what I mean? I, that, that's me. I've been there. I've done that. So, so the various types of... The various types of Trust now, we get into, you know, we have the basic definition of what a trust is. Thank mm-hmm. you for that very much. And But there are various categories of trusts. Can we get into the various types sure. of trusts? So here? let me, let me um, explain why I have a trust that I'm wearing all three hats. Okay. The reason is I'm smart enough to recognize that there might come a point in my life where I'm unable to make my own financial decisions, my own legal decisions, my own personal decisions. And instead of having someone go to court to be appointed as my guardian, or instead of having someone go to court to be appointed as the executor of my estate, what I've chosen to do is opt out of all of that and my named trustee of my trust steps in and takes over automatically. No court, no bonding, no public filing. But you are the name. I am. 
But what I've done is in my trust instrument, I have named my successor trustees so that if I'm hurt or ill or worse gone, my successor steps in. Well, how does that work? We have state law that allows for that. So I like to tell people that the probate system with wills and with guardianship, those are really defaults if you haven't done the right kind of planning. Now, as the trust trust rules and regulations very different from state to state? Uh, The general concepts are very similar. There can be state to state uh, specifics. However, when most of us draft trusts, we put a a clause in the trust that this trust shall be governed by and interpreted in accordance with the laws of the state of New Hampshire. So I have plenty of clients who have New Hampshire trusts that own their Florida condo. Uh, I have clients that move from place to place from time to time and trust travel quite well uh, for that reason. Um, The other documents don't travel quite as well. For example, healthcare directives, you know, advanced directives in mass are called mass health proxies. In Florida, they're called uh, Florida healthcare surrogacy documents. Those are very state specific. So now what, what else, what, else can I ask about trusts that I have? Well, you asked, um, you asked about the different types of trusts. Yes. And I think from a, um, uh, from a basic perspective, the, the two easiest ways to categorize are revocable or irrevocable. And when I said earlier that I have the David R. Craig revocable trust, what does that mean? That means that I always, as the person who created it, retain the right to revoke, alter, and amend that trust arrangement anytime I want. So if a trust is a rule book or a set of instructions, well, rule number one in the rule book is that I get to change the rules anytime I darn well please for any reason. Okay, So I can change my trustee. I can change the ultimate beneficiaries. I can do whatever I want. Um, And for that reason, that trust is not an asset protection device, at least for me. Okay. Okay. Because if I have the right to get my assets and change the rules and do whatever I want, whenever I want, however I want, then if I can get at my assets, so can my creditors. So I, I get that question a lot. You know, I'd like to do a trust. This is going to protect me against all of the creditor issues, right? And my answer is, well, it depends on what kind of a trust. If you do revocable trust planning as just good common sense, you know, uh, trust and estate planning, then uh, it's not a creditor protection device. You okay. still need to be a safe driver. You still need to have auto insurance. You still need to save. The thing that disqualifies it from that is the fact that you still have control. Correct. Over it. Correct. Okay. So what, what people will sometimes uh, think about doing is creating an irrevocable trust and transferring assets to that trust. So for example, if I have a trust and you're my trustee and I transfer, and it's irrevocable, and I transfer assets to you with the specific instruction that, you know, uh, 20 minutes later, you're to give those assets to my chosen beneficiary. I don't get 10 minutes into this to say, well, I've changed my mind. I want my assets back Hmm. because I have irrevocably transferred these things into that arrangement. Uh, I will tell you there's an awful lot of misinformation out there about irrevocable trusts, particularly when it comes to the subject of long-term care planning and nursing home costs. Um, I I will tell you that I'm not a big fan of irrevocable trust-driven planning for asset protection or preservation. 
especially when it comes to nursing home issues. The yeah. federal government is very, very concerned about that. We have lots of technical rules about uh, giving assets away. Mm. And stop and think about that. If I give everything to my children, I'm going to be disqualified from receiving public assistance for a while. If I do the same thing by giving those assets to an irrevocable trust, I'm similarly going to be disqualified. So there, there are a lot of mm. problems that come with that. Okay. And uh, sadly, for too long, lawyers have been trying to straddle the line mm. where uh, they've been advising people to give assets away to an irrevocable trust, but still try to give their clients power and control over that trust. And the issue with that is that the state governments, and this is not just New Hampshire, this is all around the country. Um, uh, Massachusetts had a case as well. Um, The state governments say, well, wait a minute, look, you're telling us that you have no power and control over these assets, but when we, and that you've given them away, but when we look at the documents, we're seeing all of these little powers and retained interests. Mm -hmm. We had a case here in New Hampshire called Braderman this past summer where somebody had done this um, with the goal of trying to keep those assets off the table if they had ever mm-hmm. fell ill. And um, the Supreme Court, in great gory detail, um, uh, explained why that did not work, why the family was wrong, and why the Department of Health and Human Services was right. So you have to be very, very careful about anything that's irrevocable. And my experience is that... Um, there's a time and a place for everything, mm-hmm. but for um, it is not an appropriate thing for most people. Okay. And that wraps it up for part one of my discussion with David R. Craig regarding the ins and outs of elder law practice and how it touches all of us. Part two of this discussion to be released in a few days is where things really get interesting. In the next episode, you will hear David and I discuss things such as living wills, powers of attorney, complicated Medicaid rules, guardianships, plus much more. Meanwhile, Visit the show notes page for this episode to explore the resources that are left there to help you further understand this area. You can also leave questions that you may have for David on the show notes page. He has graciously agreed to answer any questions you may have there. And something new that we're exploring for the inner game of aging is text transcriptions of selected episodes. Many of you have asked for this, and I have not yet provided them for you. So we are moving in that direction. If you'd like to be notified for when selected episodes have text transcriptions that you can download, please sign up to join the Insiders Club on the website show notes pages. These text transcripts will only be available to Insider Club members. So sign up for this notification today. Don't miss these text transcripts, especially if you, like me, prefer to read rather than hear. You can visit the show notes page at the following URL, innergameofaging.com forward slash IGA24. 
And you can always contact me directly via the email address of lee at innergameofaging.com. So, until next time. Thanks for listening to the Inner Game of Aging podcast with Lee Mo Watt. Check out more content by going to theinnergameofaging.com. That's theinnergameofaging, no spaces, dot com. Stay with us as we learn the many ways of being older without growing old.